3: And just like that, three months later, I was back in heels.
2: For fashion addicts, the long-awaited reboot of Sex and the City, and Just Like That, will be comfortingly familiar.
3: You even own a flat shoe?
2: Yes. Carrie Bradshaw is back in her pristine Manolo Blarnix, with not a sweatpant or face mask in sight. Every scene, there's a new outfit. Every outfit is minutely dissected and analysed. I need your honest opinion. You can't afford them? But something has changed. To dress the ultimate shopaholic for this series, the costume designers teamed up, not with a company selling fresh off the catwalk designer must-haves, but with ThreadUp, a firm that sells secondhand clothes from the wardrobes of the likes of you and me. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Alice Fulwood, U.S. Finance Correspondent, and today we're looking at a thoroughly modern asset class, fashion. This massive industry is changing fast. Before the pandemic, it generated some two and a half trillion dollars in revenues, but it has been walloped by lockdowns and faces an environmental reckoning. At the same time, a bold new market is developing that challenges traditional fashion business models. Technology has made it radically easier to sell
1: unwanted clothes. It really was looking for an opportunity to really sell this untapped market. And there's literally $300 billion worth of trap value in people's homes. Young resale
2: and rental firms are changing the calculus on what it means to buy fashion as
4: an investment. People are happy to pay 10 to 15% of retail price to wear a dress once. It really makes Fashion become an actual asset to invest in.
2: And ever more consumers are saying, out with the new and in with the old.
0: We are still in the beginning stages of how consumers uh, will think about circularity and end of life for their garments. It's a real directional change in consumer behavior.
2: Think about the things you spend money on. How long do they last? A cup of coffee might last a few minutes. Your smartphone will need replacing in a couple of years. Some possessions will outlive you. Think of your house. Some outlive generations, like jewellery. Everything you own lies on a spectrum. With consumption goods, like a coffee or a newspaper, at one end, and investment goods, such as a house or a diamond, at the other. Where goods lie on this spectrum determines not only how long they last, but what sort of market develops to trade in them. Three quarters of cars are bought secondhand, but no one is buying your half-drunk cup of coffee. So what about the clothes on your back, or the extremely expensive handbag I once splurged on that sat at the back of my wardrobe for years? Durability is not the only factor. Fashion matters too, and desirability can be fleeting. The fashion industry has got used to moving fast.
5: When you think about the amount of products that are produced for the fashion industry, it's about 100 billion products being produced annually. Like You can't even comprehend the scale of it. It is absolutely huge.
2: Francesca Muston is a senior analyst at WGSN the biggest forecasting firm in the fashion industry.
5: With overproduction, what we're talking about are trends that never make it into store on time, wrong time, wrong place, wrong consumer demographic. They are, for whatever reason, they're either unsold or they have to go into markdown. And a lot of that is down to just inefficient demand forecasting, especially in terms of really aligning it to getting the right product in the right place, at the right time, for the right consumer.
2: People now spend less of their income on clothing than ever before. But the number of items they buy and throw away each year has exploded. Hardly any is recycled. Fibres blended from multiple materials have to be separated. Think cotton and polyester, let alone plastic glitter and sequins.
5: The impact that it has is huge on the environment. Things like water, land degradation, 2.1 billion tons of carbon. So, I mean, according to like which reports you look at, it's somewhere between 4% and 10% of global carbon emissions can be attributed to the fashion industry.
2: Even the middle of that range would put the carbon footprint of clothing manufacture and distribution above aviation and shipping combined. By current estimates, 95% of the clothes American sent to landfills are in good enough nick to be reused or resold. But change is in the air.
4: This is the story of how I thrifted my dream wardrobe.
2: So I did a big thrifting spree spearheaded by legions of influencers led by the likes of emma chamberlain i got some stuff off depop too that i'm including in this over the past couple of years the idea of buying selling and most importantly wearing resold thrifted or consigned fashion has well and truly hit the mainstream
5: resale really took off with the advent of Some of the really big resale platforms, which we're all very familiar with today, and that would be the likes of Depop, of ThreadUp, of The Real Real, of Goat, that really have shown the incredible opportunities and and success of the the resale market. If you think about Gen Z in particular, they know exactly what brand they're looking for, they understand the, the quality, they understand how to look out for fakes. And so, you know, fashion brands are buying into resale because far from being this kind of like lowly consumer who can't afford to buy retail actually, the resale shopper is the really smart savvy one.
2: It's hard to imagine that barely a decade ago, you would have struggled to offload second-hand clothing, let alone get paid for it. High-value items were easier to resell, but meant going in person to a pawn shop or consignment store. And settling for very little in return. It was an opportunity waiting to be seized.
1: I was shopping with a girlfriend who went into a luxury, small luxury boutique. And in the back of it was an area the owner had called The Vault. The Vault was all pre-owned luxury goods. And when we walked out of the store, I asked her why she had made that transaction, because I'd never seen her... Shop in a consignment store before. And she said, Well, I wouldn't go in a consignment store. It's really not a pleasant experience. I wouldn't shop on eBay, too many fakes, and I don't want to go back and forth with the sellers. And She said to be honest i trust the owner that these things are real it's a beautiful environment and everyone wants a good deal so that's when the literally the light bulb went off and then i started really outlining what that type of business would look like hi i'm julie wainwright ceo and founder of the real real the world's largest marketplace for authenticated luxury goods we offer a curated unique selection of luxury goods and high-end contemporary goods across multiple categories. We go to your home or you can send things in, reprice it, pick, pack, and ship and handle all interactions with the consumer and then you get paid. It really was looking for an opportunity to really sell this untapped market in the luxury space. So above where eBay was selling, above the you know, the $39, $49 price points for goods and way below Sotheby's and Christie's. And there's, you know, literally $300 billion worth of trap value in people's homes. Buying jewelry, watches, home art, men's fashion and women's fashion, which includes, of course, high value handbags, sneakers, and very famous brands like Cartier, Rolex, Chanel, Prada, Gucci.
2: But it wasn't just luxury. At the other end of the market, that same light bulb had been going off in other heads too.
0: I was a student at the time, and I didn't have any money, and I went to sell my clothes at the local consignment store. So I brought these bags of clothing in, and they said, we don't take these, we just do luxury. Hi, I'm James Reinhardt. I'm the founder and CEO of ThreadUp
2: that's the same thread up that's now helping to dress the women of sex in the city.
0: And I remember it was, you know, these were this was a cashmere sweater, there was a Brooks Brothers coat, you know, these were things with real value, and they said that, you know, they couldn't take them. And so I thought there was just a huge market failure that these were items that that were definitely not worth zero, and there was no marketplace that I found convenient enough to to resell them. In our model we send you a thread up clean out kit. It holds a laundry basket, uh, worth of stuff. And you fill it with all the things that, that you don't love anymore. We go through all of that clothing. One by one, we inspect things, make sure that, that every item is in great shape and, and good quality. And then of the items that we accept, we put those online. And then the seller gets you know anywhere up to 80% of what we resell the item for. So it very much depends on the brand. For a brand like Gucci, we pay you 80% of what we're able to resell it. For cheaper fast fashion brands, you might get as little as 5%. And we sell 35,000 brands across 100 categories. We operate for the last 10 years or so in the U.S. And then we just uh, opened our first outpost in Europe. And so we're operational in nine countries in Europe. We have 1.4 million active buyers on the platform and close to half a million active sellers.
2: The business models vary. The real, Vessier real, Collective and ThreadUp stand between buyers and sellers with centralized stock. They set or suggest prices and organize shipping and authentication for a variable fee depending on the value of the goods. Others, such as Depop and Poshmark, are peer-to-peer platforms. For a flat rate commission, users list and price their own stuff, but then they also have to organize the shipping. As resale of unwanted clothes has grown, Fashion rental sites are now making it possible to loan out underused ones. First with Rent the Runway in America, and now ever more entrants hot on their heels.
4: So came up with the idea for Rotation as really a solution to my first world problem, which was that I wanted to wear new outfits for my honeymoon.
2: Ishita Cabra-Davies is the founder and CEO of Biorotation, an app for sharing clothes.
4: And I thought it'd be so nice if I could rent, if I could borrow designer outfits from well, ideally, the woman on the Instagram square, you know, who's wearing outfit of the days and then you never see them ever again. So I started researching the rental market in the UK and Europe. There was no such player like Rent the Runway in the US or Y Closet in China or Style Theory in Singapore, where I'm from. I'm gonna create this sharing platform where women could rent each other's clothes, thereby saving money, making money, and also having a smaller imprint uh, when it comes to how much they're consuming.
2: Launched in 2019, it has 100,000 active renters in the UK and it's expanding to Europe this spring.
4: What we've noticed is that people are happy to pay 10 to 15% of retail price to wear a dress once. And I feel like that makes complete sense because you know, we're talking, I think what does really well is probably contemporary, as opposed to even high-end designer. So it's not really the Chanel's and the Dior's that are doing really well. It's actually things like Chef Mews, Rizzo, Zimmerman, Self-Portrait. Mm-hmm. These are the brands that people don't want to spend five, 600 pounds on, but they'd love to rent for 50, 60 pounds. And that beats fast fashion. It really makes fashion become an actual asset to invest in.
2: Some rental companies, including the American pioneer Rent the Runway, take everything into a centralised hub. But Ashita argues this slows down the listing process too much for today's fashion trends. And renting should be direct wardrobe to wardrobe, like a specialised and social eBay, at the speed of an Instagram post.
4: No, I actually want to borrow what the women's wearing, mm-hmm. wearing on Instagram right now. You know, the outfit that everyone's talking about. Mm. Why don't we just get people to share that dress that everyone's talking about?
2: And this flurry of firms are now coming of age. The Real Real was the first to list in 2019, but the past year has been a watershed for the market. Despite the dire impact of COVID 19, ThreadUp, Poshmark, and Rent the Runway all went public. And British founded Depop was bought by Etsy, a New York based platform, for $1.6 billion in June. Between them, these fashion resellers are valued at around $8 billion. That's still just a fraction of the market capitalization of the fast fashion giants. Inditex, which owns Zara, is worth 100 billion. But fueled by lockdown cupboard clearouts, their user base is growing rapidly. According to estimates from the research firm Global Data, last year saw over 33 million new buyers and 36 million new sellers of old garb. So where did all this activity come from? What change should enable the birth of this new market for old clothes?
6: For some reason, it's surprising to some people that markets are human artefacts.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Alvin Roth is an economist and professor at Stanford University. He's a great person to ask about this because in 2012, he won the Nobel Prize for his work on market design.
6: Stock markets started in coffee houses in Amsterdam and London, you know, where people would gather to trade things. I right? uh, remember those, those poor people were working without Zoom, so they had to uh, be in physical proximity of each other to to trade things. Once you start doing that, you might as well start making some rules to make it easier about who can come and, and what it means to trade.
2: You need a few things for a market to work efficiently. The first is thickness. When offloading your old clothes meant a trek to the one consignment store in town, the market was thin and illiquid. Matching buyers and sellers was tricky, transactions were rare, and commissions were high. A thick market is one that has lots of sellers and buyers in it. Once you
6: get thickness, you you have potential congestion. You you could buy from lots of people. So you have Mm -hmm. have a way of dealing with congestion. And then more and more as as markets become, you know, really arm's length and worldwide, you need reliability and safety and, and ease of use and trust. You know, you have to have confidence in your counterparties.
2: And what was the magic ingredient that provided all of those elements? Technology. Technology is reducing the friction in trade of all kinds. This started in financial markets, where wizzy algorithms and big data have pushed trading costs practically to zero. More recently, online property platforms like Open Door and Redfin have started to drive down estate agents' commissions. The trend then extended beyond investment goods, and that was entirely more radical. It made markets where none had existed.
6: One kind of illiquid market was knickknacks in the attic. That, you know, now that you've cleaned out the attic, you have all this valuable stuff, and it was really valuable to your grandmother, which is why she didn't throw it away. And it'll be really valuable to someone else, but it's not so valuable to you, and you would like to sell it. And it used to be, you know, in in the U.S., we used to call these lawn sales or garage sales. You know, you would put signs up around the neighborhood saying, we're we're selling stuff on our front lawn. Come and look. And that's, you know, very few people can come look. The market isn't thick. The Internet made it possible to have your lawn sale on eBay. I think the Internet offered a wider, thicker market for, for all sorts of stuff. eBay was the first to take account of it.
2: And once you start looking for examples of how tech is enabling new markets, they come thick and fast.
6: So the internet made eBay possible, but the smartphone made Uber possible. You couldn't replace taxis, right? Taxis used to be this very illiquid market. I live in uh, in Santa Clara County, you know, south of San Francisco, so mm-hmm. say Palo Alto. And it used to be that uh, if I wanted a taxi, I had to call a taxi service that was licensed by the city of Palo Alto. And they would have to come back to Palo Alto empty because if I wanted a taxi in San Francisco, I would have to call a taxi company that was licensed by the city of San Francisco. And Uber came along and did various things, among them you know, ignoring lots of regulations that looked like they were about taxis. And what they said is, we're a limousine company. We're the kind of company that we can't pick you up on the street, but you can call us on your phone and we'll come get you. With one app on my phone, I can use the same app to call someone to take me to San Francisco from Palo Alto and to take me home again. So all of a sudden, the market for car rides, for taxi rides, became much more liquid, much more global, much thicker, much less congested. So that's a, a market that became available because of the new technology.
2: By reducing frictions, technology has made it possible for goods that once would have been discarded to now earn a return. Here's James Reinhardt of
0: ThreadUp. When we launched in 2010, the iPhone had just been invented. There were lots of consumer experiences that were getting started. Spotify, Airbnb, Uber, you know, all these new consumer experiences that were changing You know where people were shopping, how they were listening, how they were vacationing. And so we, we really, we didn't believe that apparel would be immune you know, to some of these changes. So everything about what we do from how we pick up the bag from your house to how we process it, in the facility to how we price the items dynamically is all is all based on technology and data science. And so, you know, for example, how likely is this item to sell in the marketplace? What can we charge for it? What will the margins look like on an item like this? What can the seller expect? And all that's done, you know, through a through a data algorithm that we have built in the back end that's doing that in real time. And so I think that there was a big Big movement on the technology side that allowed us to do this. And then also, you know, consumer mindshare, consumer shift in sort of the psyche of like how they wanted to participate in some of these markets also evolved. So I think it's a combination of technology and and consumer that gave rise to where Threat is today.
2: Coming up, we'll investigate just how far that shift in the consumer psyche is going to go. But before we do, this is your first reminder of the new year that Money Talks listeners can get a special offer to subscribe for full access to The Economist at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. Among the abundance of riches in this week's issue, we're asking how long the global housing boom can last and looking at how Apple is making a major play to dominate entertainment. That's economist.com forward slash podcast offer. And the link is in the notes of this episode.
3: That's stamps.com. Code program.
2: Fashion has had a particularly bad pandemic. Although the industry is expected to recover to full sales this year, according to McKinsey, it did post a decline of fully 20% from 2019 to 2020. But if any sector of the industry could be seen to have benefited from the disruption, it must be resale. Francesca Muston of WGSN argues the pandemic has prompted a profound shift in how people think about the clothes they already
5: own. One of the biggest factors in terms of how the pandemic specifically has impacted resale is people spending more time at home and, and using that time to clear out their wardrobes.
2: According to Global Data, one in four consumers say they care less about wearing the latest trend than before the pandemic.
5: Rather than looking at them and thinking, oh, God, that was a mistake. It's still got the label on, which, you know, we all know the statistics there. And they're quite scary in terms of the amount of products that never get worn again. It's much more considered like, okay, what is the value of this wardrobe as a sort of a a financial asset to, to be traded? And so as people are sort of looking inside their wardrobes, they're also starting to think to themselves, well, how could I have done this in a a sort of smarter way and take stock of their own personal inventory?
2: In 2021, resold clothing fetched around $15 billion, 15 times what it did less than a decade ago. If you count charity and thrift shopping, more was spent on dressing secondhand than on fast fashion in shops such as Zara or H&M. And yet, it's notable that none of the big resale players is profitable yet.
0: The business isn't currently profitable today, but growing very quickly.
2: James Reinhardt from ThreadUp.
0: Yeah, I think in our most recent, you know, quarter our gross margins were above seventy percent, and you know we feel like we have a clear path to profits today. But we think that the market is so big in the U.S. and the market is so big in Europe. We we think the the right strategy is to grow and try and uh, capture as much of that market as possible.
1: The real reels, Julie Wainwright. We're a growth company. I think the real question is in a high growth company, in a category that's never been done before. When is the inflection point where you actually have enough infrastructure where you should switch to a profitable growth versus building growth? And we're at that inflection point. We hit it coming out of COVID, so um, that's our next phase. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're growing 50% year-on-year, and um, we're less than 2% penetrated in the U.S., and we haven't even tackled international.
2: Big questions about the path to profitability remain. But despite
1: the pandemic, there are reasons to feel confident about future growth. The combination of sensibility about the planet, sort of a selfie world where people want to look unique, And then also sort of the elite fashion people embraced resale. You know, it takes a while for this to hit center, but that's sort of where we're heading. I think resale is going to be just a normal set of buying decisions. So you're looking at new and you're looking at resale, no matter what you're buying across every category. I think it's going to get more normalized, and it's going to be a legitimized a buying option for everyone.
2: How do you yourself think about what you wear? What do you buy new? What do you buy resale? And when do you decide to part with something?
1: I buy new underwear. <laughs> I buy new bathing suits. I buy new tights. And everything else, I check the rail real before I buy new.
0: I think that we are still in the beginning stages of how consumers uh, will think about a circularity and end of life for their garments.
2: ThreadUp expects resale to grow 11 times faster than the industry as a whole over the next five years.
0: In the US, I mean, it took 20, 25 years for recycling programs to really get to the penetration that they are today. And I think the generations growing up now that that would be considered you know, native mobile, I, I think will really drive this market over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Consumers are going to say, hey, which brands you know, do I want to associate myself with? And, you know, my expectation is that every store that you go into, every apparel retailer that you go to uh, in the future will have, a, will have a used section. It's a real uh, directional change in consumer behavior. This is not a fad.
2: By 2025, according to Global Data, the value of resold and thrifted clothing will almost double to $77 billion, dwarfing fast fashion at just 40 billion. And as the market grows, the real-time data these platforms are gathering on what sells, rents and resells the best are becoming an asset in themselves. Here's fashion analyst Francesca Muston.
5: Data from resale is, is incredibly important for brands to understand which of the trends of which of the products that they're buying have got real longevity and durability and ultimately value. And by having that sort of durability and value in the resale market, it improves the brand perception. It, you know, who doesn't want to shop for a brand that is known for that sort of quality and durability, because then consumers can justify Higher price points. The savvy purchases are the ones where they have been designed with real longevity in mind, and that's really where we see a, a lot of the sort of successful products in in the resale market.
4: You're seeing what real women, average consumers, are actually loving: mm-hmm. buying, renting, sharing with each other.
2: Here's Ashita Capra Davies, and I
4: think that's the data and analytics side of it, which mm-hmm. I think is very interesting. There's a whole untapped revenue stream for us, the B two B side of it. It's such a great way to get retailers, brands, producers to really think about what they should make if they're going to make new product. You know, we've seen interesting things like dresses are the most commonly rented. We also noticed that the color pink is very, very popular. for one-off occasions and some brands like Rixot, they do really well. So I think these kind of, you know, data points just in the early days have already become interesting.
2: And at the other end of the deal, the very thought that item might be rented out or resold in the future Is now starting to change how especially younger consumers approach buying in the first place.
5: What's really interesting about Gen Z in particular here is that they approach it with much more of a, a trader mentality than maybe we have seen previously what you're seeing is this kind of the opportunity for Gen Z to really be entrepreneurs and driving business and creating their own businesses on platforms like Depop. And yes, the environment absolutely does come into it, but also whether they are buying it resale or retail they're still buying it with often that sort of trader mentality of is this going to hold its value is it actually going to increase its value and i think what's really interesting there is that it kind of flips that traditional um, approach to pricing that you'd get with with retail because the consumer is much more sort of setting the value on the kind of demand for that particular product
2: A year ago, I was cleaning out my own closet and found that extremely expensive handbag that I didn't use enough. And I was amazed that by listing it on one of these platforms, I was able to make back everything that I had paid for it. So perhaps my initial extravagance was forgivable. I have no ambitions to give up my journalism career to become a fashion trader. But fortunately for those that do, the resale revolution shows no signs of slowing down stroller hips the neighbourhood today and the young rich and beautiful have painstakingly curated their looks from hours of trawling thrift and vintage online and off in this way the shift towards second-hand fashion is self-reinforcing with fashion tastes changing because well because fashion tastes have changed and the more people sell their old stuff the cooler wearing it will become too Our thanks to Francesca Muston, Julie Wainwright, James Reinhardt, Ishita Cabra-Davies, and Alvin Roth. For more on the future of fashion, make sure you go and listen to our profile interview podcast, The Economist Asks, with designer Anya Hindmarsh. We ask her whether luxury fashion can ever really go green. And she tells us about the political heavyweight whose handbagging inspired her to go into business. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. The producer was Amika Shortino-Nolan. Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Alice Forward, and in London, this is The Economist
3: Traffic jams,
1: tailgating, pile ups.